Hello, and welcome to Stairway to ATJ, the CBA podcast that deals with all things access to justice. We see access to justice as encompassing all efforts to provide people the opportunity to use the justice system when they're in need of a legal remedy. I am Anthony Pereira, a program coordinator for Metro Volunteer Lawyers, which is the pro bono arm of the Denver Bar Association. And I'm Mia Kotnick, the Access to Justice Program Manager for the Colorado Bar Association. Today, we're going to highlight and be talking, um, taking a hard look at the child welfare system and discussing the access to justice issues that arise in dependency neglect cases. After learning more about how these cases arise and wind their way through the system, we will learn about race and racism in the child welfare system. We will also explore the disparities other populations face in dealing with the child welfare system. This episode of Stairway to ATJ is going to cover access to justice issues in the child welfare system. We have Jennifer Isle from the Project Safeguard uh, for our pro bono corner. And then we're going to feature a passionate interview with Mike Boyce from the law office of Michael P. Boyce and MJ from MJ Consulting Firm. First, let's take a listen to the Pro Bono Corner. The Pro Bono Corner gives you a chance to hear about pro bono opportunities and programs addressing access to justice issues from every corner of the state. If you would like to be featured or know of a program that should be featured, email us at atjpodcast at cobar.org. In this Pro Bono Corner, we have with us Jennifer Isle. She is the Executive Director of Project Safeguard, which is a wonderful program. So Jen, uh, Jennifer, go ahead and tell us a little bit about yourself. Thank you. Um, I, as you mentioned, I'm the executive director of Project Safeguard. I've been in that role for um, just over a year. I was the legal director for the year before that and um, spent five years at the Rocky Mountain Children's Law Center running the domestic violence program there. My career has been kind of all over the place. I started out with a master's in counseling psychology, um, found my way to victim advocacy, and was an executive director at a nonprofit called Wings Foundation that works with adults who are sexually abused as children before I went to law school. I graduated from law school in 2008. Um, it was a terrible time to graduate and try to find a job. Uh, I took my counseling skills and I started a family law practice, which I didn't do for very long before I learned about the role of a child and family investigator and got trained to do that and worked as a child and family investigator until I was able to find a job in the field at the Children's Law Center in 2013. So I've been working in the field in a variety of ways really since 1994. And um, now I have the privilege of being at Project Safeguard and have been able to build our attorney services program. And can you tell us a little bit more about Project Safeguard and what you do there? I'm happy to. Um, so our mission at Project Safeguard is to empower and partner with people who've experienced gender-based violence, helping them navigate a course of survivor-driven justice through expert trauma-informed legal advocacy and representation. And what that looks like is our, our primary work is in the area of legal advocacy. And that's what Project Safeguard was started to do back in 1981, we have legal advocates who are not attorneys who under normal circumstances are present in courthouses in the counties that we serve, which is Adams, Arapaho, Broomfield, and Denver. And they provide assistance with getting temporary protection orders in county court, with navigating the legal system and providing legal information in a variety of ways to survivors of gender-based violence. 
In the past five years, we've been really fortunate in Colorado uh, that the Victims of Crime Act Fund opened up and we got almost five times the amount of money that we were previously getting for programs that serve victims of crime. And one of the priorities that our state Crime Victim Services Board decided to focus on was civil legal services for crime victims. And Project Safeguard piloted a program called Lawyers for Victims to see if having contract attorneys working with victims of crime in civil protection order cases would be a way that we could kind of bridge that gap between victims of crime needing access to legal services and the lack of access to, uh, to attorneys and the inability of them to afford attorneys. So when that program was piloted, we started out with a few attorneys and a program where if somebody had shared children um, with the other party in a civil protection order case in county court, we would provide them with an attorney for that permanent protection order hearing. That program was incredibly successful. In the following year, it was expanded so that there were five other programs in the state that got funding in order to provide that same service. And we provided the technical assistance for that. That program still exists at Project Safeguard and we're actually able to provide that service to um, anyone who applies and is granted a temporary protection order who is referred by one of our advocates or an attorney. Out of that really grew this recognition that we have a, a need for more attorneys to represent victims in domestic relations cases in particular. And I know anyone who is interested in access to justice knows how challenging it is for folks to access any kind of representation. Um, we have amazing programs around the state that provide these services, but they're limited in who they can serve and how they can provide that service. So when I started at Project Safeguard um, beginning of 2019, we had just been granted additional funding to hire our first staff attorney. We hired a staff attorney in April of 2019 and started building what we now call our attorney services program so that when clients who don't, don't qualify for Colorado Legal Services or Justice and Mercy Legal Aid Center because they make too much or or for other reasons, we still need representation that isn't provided by another organization, we are able to provide some of that help. And we do that in an unbundled um, sort of client empowerment way. We're really approaching every client with, you know, what exactly are the individual circumstances of your case and how can we help you with that? Because we learned pretty quickly that if we were gonna to try to provide full representation to every client who qualified for our services, our, we'd be um, maxed out at capacity after about five full-time clients um, came on. So, um, so we, we took that model and started working with that. And then we also have been able to hire two Colorado Civil Justice Corps fellows, one um, in October, 2019 and one in 2020. And if you're not familiar with that program, it's an amazing program also funded by the Victims of Crime Act funds that goes directly to DU students. So each year, the law school has an opportunity for agencies to apply to get a CCJC fellow, and then students can apply based on which agencies have been selected to be a fellow at those agencies. Um, and we've been fortunate that the two years that that program has existed, we have gotten a fellow each of those years. So our three attorneys um, work on civil protection orders in county court. We do civil protection orders in district court. And then we do um, divorce and, and allocation of parental responsibilities in district court. And then all of those things overlap tremendously. Um, so of course we all work together um, and the attorney's partner on, on different cases. It's also having attorneys in house has also allowed us to provide some um, just basic 
legal advice and legal information to folks on housing issues or financial issues, employment issues. Um, we don't do a lot of that work in-house, but we partner with other agents. That's great. It, it sounds like you guys have a lot of ways of helping out. And I work with MVL and we just got a CCJC fellow as well from the VOCA. So we're really excited to take people on full, full rep. I don't know if you can share with us a, a quick recent success story that you've had. Show us the light at the end of the tunnel kind of thing. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I always forget when I give the list of our services a couple of things. So I just want to add those really quickly and then I'll get to the success story. Um, we do also offer a divorce and custody clinic for our clients. So if clients are working with an advocate and what they need is the ability to get their case filed or even to respond to a case that's been filed. Um, we just started in the last month launching that clinic remotely so that we can start providing that service again. The other thing that we are able to offer, we do immigration consultations. We have a couple of attorneys that partner with us and do initial consultations. And then we have some money set aside so that we can pay those attorneys to take on cases for U visa or um, vow self petitions and other victim relate, um, survivor related um, immigration work. Um, my favorite story to tell of a client success is a client that we've actually been working with for, I think, a year now. This client came to us, initially filed for a temporary protection order and worked with one of our advocates, but was really having a hard time figuring out how to navigate the system, failed to appear at the temporary protection order or permanent protection order hearing and, and kind, of, kind of fell through the cracks, but then reached out again and said, I'm not sure what happened. I don't understand. Um, and COVID was happening, of course, right at the same time. So things were, were going remote and getting complicated. So our first CCJC fellow, Maggie, focuses on civil protection orders in county court. And so we set this client up with her to start the process over and see if we could just refile the complaint, add some new information, have an attorney draft it so it was more complete and more thorough and then start the process all over again. So we provided representation from the ex parte temporary protection order hearing all the way through the permanent protection order hearing, and this client was able to get a permanent protection order. At that time, the client said, I think I actually wanna go ahead and get a divorce as well, and I have concerns about my immigration status. So the client was able to connect with one of our immigration attorneys and work on a VAWA self-petition and also started working with both of our CCJC fellows because the client's first language is Spanish and our newest CCJC fellow um, is bilingual. And we thought, let's see if maybe that is helpful to this client to be able to work with both the attorney that he's been working with from the beginning and this um, our new attorney who is bilingual and can speak the language that is his first language. So the divorce is almost final, um, that the process is moving forward and going really well. Um, and he was able to apply for a valid self-petition. We covered all of the costs of that for him. And he's just, you know, waiting however long that takes to, to actually get um, legal status. So, so that just happens to be a client who we were able to sort of provide every single service um, that we have to. And, and it's been really neat to just watch that process. And um, I know it's, it's just been incredibly empowering for him to feel like he's got people in his corner helping him through every step of that. So if our listeners want to get involved, uh, how can they get involved in Project Safeguard? We do contract attorney work um, for our Lawyers for Victims program, and we are always looking for attorneys who are interested in taking those cases on a contract basis. So if folks want to reach out to me, um, and I will be glad to talk with them and 
get um, see if it's going to be a good fit for them to join our team of contract attorneys. So if uh, folks want to get involved, how can they contact you? They can reach me at jeyl at psghelps.org or call me at 720-827-3281. Great. Thank you so much. Today's interview will focus on disparities in the child welfare system. We're going to focus on racial disparities and look at systematic and structural issues in the entire system. And we're also going to discuss disparities impacting other vulnerable populations. We are joined today by two veteran child welfare professionals from the Denver metro area. We are thrilled to highlight the voice of a trained social worker and racial justice advocate to help us understand the experiences of families intertwined with the child welfare system. I'm also selfishly excited to bring on an excellent litigator and my former boss. So we have with us today MJ or Malika Jihad, and she is the director of MJ Consulting Firm, um, which is an agency focused on dismantling systematic racism in the child welfare system. And that's done through education, advocacy, and of course, policy reform. She is the CEO and co-creator of EC3, which is Emic Cultural Consultants Collective, um, where she specializes in transformational work with both the individual and organizations focused on structural racism. She's also the adjunct faculty member for the University of Denver's Graduate School Work Program, where she teaches race, privilege, social justice, as well as some law courses. Um, she herself is pursuing a PhD at the Chicago School of Professional Psychology. So welcome it, NJ. You have any other cool projects I missed? No, thank you so much. Um, I, I, I can't wait to share with you a little bit about what I'm doing um, as far as on the anti-racism side currently um, and getting national attention with that. So thank you so much, Anthony, for the intro. And our other guest, uh, guest is Mike Boyce. Mike Boyce has been practicing law since 2004. He started his career at the Denver Trial Office of the Colorado Office of the Public Defender. In 2010, he started the law office of Michael Boyce, where he focused on criminal defense. In 2018, he began representing indigent parents in dependency and neglect cases through the Office of Respondent Parent Counsel. He has two full-time associates who focus on representing parents in dependency and neglect proceedings at both the trial and appellate levels. Mike, what drew you to Respondent Parent Counsel work in the first place? Well, in, in getting my start with the uh, Colorado Public Defender's Office, um, from the very beginning, uh, I saw an overlap between my clients that were facing criminal charges that would also have uh, dependency and neglect cases uh, that they were facing uh, at the same time. So it was sort of a natural uh, evolution to my practice to learn this area of law and start to advocate on their behalf uh, in those cases as well. Uh, you know, for, for a lot of clients, uh, the threat of losing their child is as, uh, as scary and as uh, damaging to them as, as losing their liberty. Thank you, Mike. And thank you, MJ, for joining us. Um, 
So I'm going to jump right into the interview. And I'm just curious, um, this question is for both of you, but in a sentence or two, what does access to justice mean to you? I have thought about this question uh, for a while, honestly. And in the work that I do, that is what we want to establish as a foundation of equality. Um, when you have equality, then you can actually have legitimate access to justice for the vulnerable population that we serve. Um, so when I think about access to justice, I think about first you have to even the plan field. Um, and what that looks like is dis dismantling systemic racism, um, dismantling racism within the child welfare system, but everything that touches um, juvenile delinquency cases, justice reform, uh, dependency and neglect cases, everything that touches um, this field needs to be re-examined um, and needs to be properly structured to serve the population that is meant to serve. And Mike, what does access justice mean to you? So in, in the context of dependency and neglect cases, uh, what it means to me, sort of that all similarly situated parents have an equal chance at the same outcome, regardless of their race, their background, and especially their economic status. Unfortunately, in these types of cases, that's not always true. So much is dependent on who the caseworker is, who the guardian ad litem is, uh, who the attorney that's representing them is, and unfortunately, sometimes who the judge is. Uh, and there are a lot of people involved in these cases, and they are mostly white, most come from a privileged background, including myself. They all bring their own biases as far as what they believe is in the best interest of the children, which is sort of the overriding goal in these cases is determining what is in the best interest of the children, which means that all too often there's a disconnect between what the statute statutes governing this area of law intend and what the actual result is at the end of these cases, which all too often results in the termination of parental rights. So you both bring up really important points, and I'm excited to uh, dig into those later. But before we get too far, I think that this is an area of the law that not a lot of people know about. Um, even a lot of attorneys don't know a ton about dependency and neglect. So Mike, could you kind of walk us through the stages of a DNN case? Absolutely. Uh, so a dependency and neglect case uh, begins when a petition is filed in the juvenile court alleging that a child is dependent or neglected due to one of several possible uh, statutory criteria. Briefly, these criteria are a parent has abandoned the child or subjected them to mistreatment or abuse. The child lacks proper parental care. The child's environment is injurious to their welfare. A parent fails to pro provide a child with proper or necessary subsistence, subsistence, education, or medical care or anything else for their health and well-being. Uh, the child is homeless without proper care uh, or not living with a parent through no fault of the parent, the child is, has run away or is beyond the control of the parent, or the child is born exposed to a Schedule One or Schedule Two controlled substance and the child's welfare or health is threatened by that substance use. So those are the ways uh, in which a case opens. Uh, and when a case opens, it's due to a referral being made to the Department of Human Services. This is usually uh, made by a mandatory reporter, such as a school teacher, a therapist, law enforcement, if they're investigating allegations of child abuse, for example, 
And at that stage, the department opens up an investigation. If they determine there is enough information to support opening a case, they will file a petition with the court alleging that the child is dependent or neglected. At that point, the case is open, sorry, the case is set before a magistrate, usually within 72 hours, uh, to determine whether uh, out-of-home placement is in the child's best interest. So right from the outset of these cases, the kids are, are usually out of the home at the first appearance when they get to court. From there, uh, if the case involves a child under six years old, uh, which would be an expedited placement proceeding. Uh, the parents are entitled to have a jury trial or a court trial within 60 days to a jury of six. The child is over uh, six years old. The trial has to occur within 90 days. Uh, and at the trial, the department has to prove the child is dependent or neglected by a preponderance of the evidence. If at the trial, the child is found not to be dependent and neglected, the case is closed and the child is returned home. If the child is found to be dependent and neglected, the case is set for a disposition hearing in about 30 days. At the disposition hearing, the department submits a proposed treatment plan that is supposed to be designed to address the issues that brought the case to the attention of the department. For example, if there was a drug uh, use, substance use issue, uh, the recommendation will be to have an evaluation and comply with whatever treatment recommendations come out of uh, the evaluation. Then there are review hearings every 90 days to check on the status of the client's progress and to address any issues that are proving to be barriers to being successful in the treatment plan. For example, if, if a client is having trouble with transportation, uh, the court can sort of try to address that um, uh, try to get bus passes for that client or something um, so that they can uh, get to their appointments. There are also permanency planning hearings that are held to determine what the permanency goal is for the child. One of the goals is always to uh, return the child home. The other goals uh, that could be adopted are to place the child with a family member or adoption uh, with foster parents uh, would be another option for permanency. After that, uh, the department or guardian ad litem can file a motion for termination or an allocation of parental responsibilities uh, or a return home. Uh, if it is for termination, the court will have a hearing where the department uh, or guardian ad litem, if they filed the motion, has to show by clear and convincing evidence that the parent is not fit and that they will, become, and that they will not become a fit parent in a reasonable amount of time. Uh, this is supposed to be a last resort in these cases, but unfortunately, um, I would say in the cases that, that I have, uh, it's, it's the outcome more often than not. Yeah, and that's, that's unfortunate. Um, and so much more of access justice occurs outside the courtroom as well. So MJ, I was hoping that you can enlighten us a little bit about what's going on in the real world as far as what, what are the parents' and children's lives between court hearings and during this whole process? What do they look like? You know, um, I kind of think about this question just in the era that we are in. It's, it's always like time frames, pre-COVID, post-COVID, right? Um, and unfortunately, it doesn't look very much different. Um, and, and one reason why that is unfortunate is because of, and Mike, you did a great job in explaining what that system looks like, um, because we are on different time frames. So 
It is greatly unfortunate that once a family is involved in dependency and neglect cases, and it also depends on which county that you're in, um, that there are factors that are involved to where parents, if they are removed, the children are removed from the, from the parents, then they don't know where their children are. They don't have visits. Um, so this is a system that is set up to essentially protect the children. Um, the reason why that that's highly inappropriate is because you're working with a lot of collective cultures, collective cultures, African, African-American cultures, Asian cultures, Latinx cultures, and so forth. And those collective cultures is more about community uh, based. Um, so when you work within an individualistic society, like working within white America, it is very individualistic. So they're thinking specifically about that child and that's culturally disrespectful. I don't like to use the word competence because I believe that white America skipped over competence. And I think we need to go back to the basics and use respect. Respect is the acknowledgement that there are differences within yourself and other cultures. So that's what my organization use. We use cultural respect. So there's that lack of cultural respect, which means that when there is someone that is assigned specifically to that child, usually the guardian ad litem, sometimes you'll have a CASTA working hand in hand. Um, the caseworker's job is to think about the family as a whole. It's more of this community picture, but you have a lot of individuals that's looking specifically out for that individual. Again, makes it greatly disrespectful because what I say to people, especially anyone that works within a child welfare system, um, if you aren't, you cannot love and respect the brown and black child without loving and respecting the black and brown family. And those includes the parents. And you can't love and respect the black and brown families without loving and respecting the communities. So a lot of people that come from the individualistic society think about their client as one, um, which is why it's very easy for white America to remove children um, from their families and say, oh, I don't think this is good because a lot of this is what Mike said, goes back to the biases. Um, people don't realize that biases or um, racism is just elevated privilege uh, of biases. You're able to elevate what you believe is what's best and put power to that for that to happen. Um, going back to the acronym CASA that I use, which is a court appointed um, child uh, advocate. Um, a CASA can be appointed to a case and they usually don't have any background in the child welfare system. They are volunteers, which is a privilege within itself for you to be able to volunteer your time and not have to work. Um, they usually don't um, represent the family that is from their culture. Um, so usually it's a middle-aged, middle-class, white woman, privileged white man, um, some retire, some empty nest syndrome. It's like this stereotypical uh, kind of CASA, um, but they're able to give recommendations of what they believe is what's best for that child. And that is due to their own individual biases of what a family should look like. Yeah, so let's um, kind of circle back to where we started with um, access to justice. Um, and you both gave such thoughtful but different um, definitions. So um, if you could identify one or two, what are the top access to justice issues in the child welfare system? Honestly, in approaching this question, is again, it's so difficult. But ultimately, what I what what my recommendations are is to revert back to given the very basic standard of you have a lot of vulnerable population that that is caught up within the system. 
And then you have a lot of white people that do this for many reasons um, of work. But now that we know, and now that it's been identified that this entire system is set up to be, continue to be disadvantaged for people of color, um, I recommend that white people either become allies or completely leave the system because my community, and my community is every community that touches the child welfare. So it's not a black thing. I'm African-American, Native American, Muslim, and I was in the child welfare system when I was younger as well. So it's not necessarily just my community that looks like me, the reflection of me. It's my community of the vulnerable population of the child welfare system that don't have a lot of advocates with a lot of power. Um, so the access means that white America, and don't be confused with white Americans, because it's not all white Americans, but white America is a culture um, to step out of the way and to let people that are connected with the actual community start to heal it. Because we need a lot of healing right now and people are overlooking that. Um, people are, I, I live in the state of Colorado now and I remember when I was first learning about the idea of carbon footprints. And I was wondering, why aren't people measuring their trauma footprint whenever they are involved in dependency and neglect cases? Can you elaborate a little bit more as far as what you mean by trauma footprint? Absolutely. So just walking in a system, a family been involved in the system already has trauma. I have been working with the Guardian at Lightham's office, oh gosh, since 2012. And now I work with RPC as well. And I supervise parent advocates and ORPC um, are the attorneys that represent parents' best interests. Our parents' representation, Garnet Lightums represents children's best interests in the state of Colorado. Garnet Lightums and other states do many other different things. Um, so whenever I, I, I come back to, to the fact that you have the trauma footprint, most of my clients, that our parents were involved in the system, uh, the child welfare system as a child, as a teenager. So we know that we are doing something wrong because we as the government believe that we're gonna place children with who we believe is what is appropriate. And I've made these mistakes in my early career as well. Um, and then those children end up coming back and then they become adults and then we represent them as adults. So that trauma footprint is whenever you're walking into a family, understanding what that family unit is and keep it in mind that you need to place it back as much as possible as you can. Because when you go in that family home, we don't represent anything good. We represent trauma, we represent sadness, we represent anger, we represent, we represent everything negative. And, and, and having the self-awareness that we represent that and knowing that we're gonna work with this family and we need to do it in the most gentle way is greatly important. Um, but we don't see it like that because we don't operate like that. We go in and we see something that we believe is was trashed and we continue to trash it um, the entire way. And we drag parents and we drag children through the system that we don't make any better. And to be clear, I think a lot of people and a lot of our listeners and, and myself before talking to you guys thought like access justice kind of meant getting an attorney. But um, in these types of cases, there are, there are coin appointed attorneys. And Mike, you have a lot of experience as coin appointed counsel and office of um, respondent parent counsel. So how do you respond to you think that just having an attorney is enough? Certainly having uh, an attorney is one 
of the significant pieces of ensuring that parents, you know, have access to justice as as we think about this uh, attempt to sort of level the playing field here, right? Um, and since the creation of the Office of Respondent Parent Counsel, which is just four or five years old, uh, the level of representation that parents in these situations um, receive has dramatically increased. Um, however, there, there are still inherent problems with the Children's Code in dealing with the systemic and often generational issues that have brought parents into these situations um, to begin with. Um, and, and to MJ's point, um, I think that approaching these cases uh, from an individualistic perspective uh, is problematic as, as opposed to, to from a community-based um, a community-based standpoint. In these cases, the, the overriding concern is what the child's best interest is rather than what the family's best interest is. What does this family need? And what we're talking about is, you know, in a lot, in, in these cases, uh, when a case opens, a child will be taken out of the home. They'll often be placed in foster care um, with a family that is, uh, 95% of the time, I think, uh, white, um, that is well off, um, versus a parent who has experienced generational poverty and issues in their own family growing up. And if you're, if you're talking about what is in this child's best interest, the white upper-class family raising this kid is probably going to win out more often than not. And unfortunately it does. I kind of say that jokingly, like when it is, when is it ever in the child's best interest to be taken out of out of that family and 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 put back to in where they came from? Um, but unfortunately, the way the system currently works is it sort of lends itself to finding ways to make it so that the individual parent is not meeting these expectations, and it's a lot of people's expectations that they need to meet. They need to meet the judge's expectations and the caseworker's expectations, the uh, county attorney's expectations, and the guardian ad litem's expectations. And all of those people need to be on board with and in agreement with that child returning home most of the time. Uh, certainly as, as counsel for, for my clients, I can file motions to have the, the child returned home. But it is going to be an extraordinarily difficult uphill battle to have uh, the judge agree with me when everyone else in the courtroom is opposing what I'm what I'm requesting. And I think that uh, the expedited placement cases are sort of a prime example of this that I alluded to before, where in an expedited placement proceeding, the child is under six years old and under the law, they need to be placed in a permanent home within uh, 12 months of the petition being filed. Um, so if you have a parent that actually says, I uh, disagree that, this, that my child was dependent or neglected, I want to have a trial. The best case scenario, that trial has to be done within 60 days. I've never once actually had them meet that deadline. It's usually after that. But if you have uh, a let's say the, the court is able to give them a trial within 60 days, 
were not successful at trial. Then we have a, a disposition hearing where a treatment plan comes. Well, we're already three months into the case, okay? Leaving the parent with nine months left to complete that treatment plan. Most of these cases, substance use has some, some part to play, okay? So we all know that relapse is part of rehabilitation. But if you have a parent that relapses 10 months into the case, you are going to be hard pressed to find a judge, a guardian ad litem, a uh, county attorney, a caseworker who is going to sign off on a child being returned home to that parent if they have only demonstrated two months of sobriety. So the, the way that, that, the, the, that the statutory constructs are is not really in line with how we are able to get parents to become fit, how we are able to get them in a place where they can safely raise their child. And that's only if they have substance use as an issue, if they also need to get a job um, and need mental health treatment as well, and all these other issues that they need to, that they need to take care of, it does become this systemically built in hurdle that they need to overcome that is near impossible uh, under that time frame, which is not evidence-based uh, in terms of how long it should take a parent to become fit. I think the issue is we need to approach it from a uh, family welfare standpoint, as opposed to we have the child over here and what does that child need? And we have the parent on the other side and what do they need? And maybe they'll be compliant with their treatment plan. And if they're not, obviously, then the, then the child is is going to foster care or hopefully another family member or something. So that's, that's one of the biggest issues that I see. I kind of like the issue as far as the individualistic versus community approach where you start with the individual, which is a child, but then you include their family. That's a bit, a bit bigger of a community. And then you include the community as a whole, which is even bigger around that. Right now, I think there is a community-wide reckoning um, in the criminal justice uh, system. And, you know, people are really looking at what's going on there and the systemic racism. So can you talk about the um, systemic racism that exists in the child welfare system? And why, why are we hearing about this in the criminal um, justice realm, but not um, in the child welfare realm? So one thing I, I want to first acknowledge what, what Mike has said um, about the ORPC, and I always do this, but I want to shout out to Melissa Thompson. Um, when she became director of ORPC, and, and I've been in the child welfare world for almost a decade now, the entire culture changed. Um, the attorneys stepped it up. I've never been so proud to work with ORPC attorneys because they step it up so hard. They have everything against them, everything against them. Um, they're automatically seen as a negative party by doing their job and defending their client, who's the parent, who is ventilized. They are, they are considered to be a villain when they have a DNN case. Um, so shout out to, to ORPC attorneys and, and Melissa Thompson that changed the entire culture for people to work hard. Appeals have went up. Cases have been overturned and so forth. So I, I, I want to put that out there. One reason why I believe that the dependency and neglect arena is very secretive because it's a shameful, it's very shameful for parents that have been involved with the child welfare system. Usually there is some kind of issue around what Mike had talked about, um, identify substance abuse, but substance abuse, and then there's usually the mental health, and then there's usually poverty, 
And then there's and then there's sprinkle some domestic violence on top of that. And they're expected to completely turn their life around in less than a year. Even if the children are are older in their teenage years, it's more about what is easiest for the Department of Human Services, what is easiest for the Garden at Lightham's office. Teenagers are harder to be placed into foster homes. And now with the Families First Act, a lot of group homes have been shut down. But back to the original question of why why is it why are we having this conversation with independency and neglect is because the parents are traumatized by the system embarrassed to even be involved the children traumatized by the system what people don't realize is when you've been a child in the child welfare system is that it stamps you that is a point in time where you will never forget it completely alters your life um, and it's changing. It is It is like a pre-COVID, post-COVID. It's like pre-DNN, post-DNN kind of relationship. And then, and then you have the professionals that are involved. Uh, shout out to caseworkers, Department of Human Services, especially Denver County, which is where, where my foundation is, because it is such hard work. And they have to try to formulate what is best for this community while fighting every other professional involved as well. So a lot of people don't talk about this field. It is a very secretive field and it's and it's emotional. So a lot of people make a lot of judgments based off of their emotions, which is their biases. And this is including guardian ad litems. This can include uh, treatment providers and especially judges. What people don't realize is that termination, TPR, when you terminate parental uh, rights, that is the death penalty of child protection. And I just want to pause because people don't see it that way. It is the death penalty of child protection. We have a lot of death penalty cases in the child protection world that no one talks about because of everyone's biases and everyone, well, the parent must have deserved it. Well, hopefully that child is in a better place. Um, my organization created a presentation about mandated reporting when you make that call. Um, a lot of people believe as a mandated reporter that you're going to save this child from this horrible place and then their life is going to be better. Not understanding what that, how many children are placed in multiple homes, in multiple foster homes, in multiple group homes, how many adoptions are overturned because these kids want to be with their biological family, especially with this new age of social media and the um, DNA testing. A lot of biological children are finding their biological family, their birth family, because they didn't necessarily agree with being placed with with their foster family or their adoptive family and so forth. So I believe it's it's a very secretive field to to be to work in because people don't understand it unless you're in it. You can't really explain it unless you've done it or unless you've been a part of it. That's why I think that a lot of people are just now having or not necessarily just now having the conversation, but waking up to, ooh, this isn't right. And Mike, you have a foot in both worlds. Yeah, I mean, I think you know we have seen a huge shift uh, in in the realm of criminal prosecutions and the criminal justice system, uh, especially since the advent of body-worn cameras and, you know, everybody has a uh, video camera in their pocket, right? Things that uh, the black and brown communities have been, have been saying for years and years and years about how uh, police officers, you know, don't treat them right. And um, all of these things are happening where they are getting beat up by police and stuff. Well, now we can see that. Uh, we see that on 
um, on video. It is right in front of us. Juvenile cases, unfortunately, those that's it doesn't lend lend itself well to um, that sort of outrage. Uh, you can't video. You don't. You we're not able to videotape what's going on so that. Uh, the general public can see this and say, wow, something really needs to be done about this. Uh, and, you know, it is very secretive. Um, the Department of Human Services sort of controls when referrals are going to be made to treatment providers and who they are going to contract with. And, you know, if they don't like the, the recommendations that certain treatment providers are giving uh, because they may be too, uh, too much in favor of the parent, they're going to stop contracting with that person. They're going to go to somebody else that they feel is more has the child's best interest uh, at heart, as opposed to the family, um, or or is not as sympathetic to the parent. So a lot of these these things aren't happening on video. I I don't know of any movies made about juvenile dependency and neglect cases. There's a million that are made about uh, sort of the criminal justice side of things, uh, and. And it, it really is, uh, as MJ pointed out, uh, this this secretive area of the law that, you know, when we first, first started this podcast, most attorneys out there don't know what happens in these cases. Uh, it is vastly different than the general family law uh, that most people are accustomed to when we're talking about divorce cases uh, or even custody disputes in, in that arena. Here, it, it doesn't have that same uh, exposure to it in the uh, eyes of the public. Um, they're just not exposed to it. It is um, very little is known even in even in the legal communities. So I, I think that is part of the uh, bigger problem. And to some extent, I also think that uh, if, if you ask dependency and neglect stakeholders, a lot of them will tell you, oh, we are addressing uh, substance use for these parents. We are addressing, um, you know, parenting issues by having parenting classes and these things. So they would argue that from an individualistic standpoint, we are trying to treat the needs of that particular parent as opposed to coming at it from uh, this, this larger community-based uh, paradigm. Uh, but it, realistically, in order to um, get that shift, there is going to need to be more sort of public awareness being made uh, about this, which I know MJ is 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 working on through her, her organization as well. So I, j I just wanted to follow up on something MJ said um, about, I think, um, both parents and respondent parent counsel being villainized um, for that role. And I think we've talked a little bit about the public's perception. Um, why shouldn't the public look at parents and respondent parent counsel in that villain role? I mean, it's, it's about changing your lens um, because if you see the lens that the parents are a product of us, of what we've done. So as soon as a child that has been in a, that's had a penancy and neglect case ages out of the system and they usually go running out of the system and then they, they become a parent, then it's that child that we raise as a government agency, as a community, we raise them and now they're back in the system. So it's like, how are you ventilizing? It is, it, to me, is the equivalent when you have this collective lens that however harmful and however hurt that my community is impacts me, then you think about it as a whole. And that's how we have to think about this community. It is a community that we are supposed to be here to lift. So it's kind of like, you know, 
if you were my mom and I was out in the streets acting a fool, picking up cases, and then you turn around and go, how dare you? I can't believe you did that. And I'm like, but I got this from you. It was your lack of supervision or it was your, you know what I mean? As a community, we did this. So, so to ventilize what we've done, it is so hypocritical and it's not helpful. Um, and that's why I say things such as, and the pe white people, one, they're not qualified to say what is not racist. You're qualified to say what is racist, but you don't have the qualifications to say what's not racist because nothing would be racist to white America, right? Because no one wants to admit to their faults. So when you have people that have this lens of biases that are elevated through their privilege that then become racist, um, which people inherently do, people sometimes subconsciously, they don't know that they do this, and then you use that not to uplift the community, I feel some type of way about that. I feel some type of way as a person of color in this system about you not doing your part. Because only in white America can I think of how people are greatly unqualified to work with the population that they work with and then pat themselves on the back for doing such a good job for saving one child, um, for saving something and destroying an entire community. It is absurd. And that's what I want people to open their eyes to. This shouldn't be just a job to people. This should be people trying to go in and heal an entire community that has been destroyed from white America, systemic racism from slavery to Jim Crow law to um, during the civil rights, the, the war on drugs. All of this plays a part into this generational trauma going back to what is a trauma footprint? Right, just being a white person going into a family creates a trauma footprint. And you mentioned these lenses, and that a lot of the professionals in in this, the the casas, the guardian items, the judges, the attorneys, are white. But can you discuss also the over overrepresentation of these? Um, I think the term we were talking about before is these white saviors, and then the overrepresentation of the black and brown families that are actually in the system. Absolutely. You know, one, one prime example is children, not even necessarily children, people involved in the child welfare system um, are six times more likely people of color to be misdiagnosed with schizophrenia, with personality disorders, over-medicated by far. And for that to be the norm, for that to be the norm, um, it's really concerning that a lot of people don't talk about and a lot of people don't know. One of my recommend, excuse me, one of my recommendations is for the Garden at Lightham's office and the ORPC office with the parents council representation attorneys to come together and say, as a community, how can we lift this family? It's a very isolated, it's, it's a one or the other. The best Garnet items that I've known have always, has also been RPCs. They've also represented families. So they understand more of a lens. But when you get people in here that are strictly to save the child, they are doing so much damage in destroying. And, and what Mike was, was um, referring to was the way, that, the way that I describe white America, especially in the child welfare system, is white America, not to be mistaken with all white people and all white Americans, but white America culture is a domestic violence perpetrator. Um, and what that looks like is that people of color are gaslit all the time that this doesn't exist, no one's racist against you when the entire system is racist, and we, we know this. Um, 
they're able to control your, your finances when you're, this is white America, control your finances, control what you need to do, control your families. Um, and then at the end, you're just told that there's something wrong with you. You're crazy. I don't know what's happening, but the system is set up to continue to dismantle and destroy all families that enter it. It's not just families of color. It is all families. We know that families of color are disproportionately um, captured in this net. We know this. We know Children's Hospital has high numbers of recommendations that they're calling the Dep Department of Human Services on families. I, I know a story of, uh, he was a supervisor, um, caseworker, and went into Children's Hospital with his wife, who's also a social worker. Child had a birthmark because of the, and we know this as people of color, that we get certain birthmarks. It looked like a bruise. He said that if he did not have his badge that shows he was a caseworker, they were going to open up a case. We know that I tell my clients, if you have a child, don't do it at um, Children's Hospital because we know systematically a lot of racism is, exists within the hospital settings. I know as a person of color, as a woman of color that is educated, that I will be three times more likely to die giving childbirth than my client who could be a white woman addicted to meth and heroin with no college education. I'm still three times more likely to die. What, systemic racism is dangerous. It's not only dangerous mentally, it is dangerous physically. I don't want to have a white doctor that's not culturally respectful because I could die. Our families are dying out here in this community under the arms and under this umbrella of the child welfare system. And we know it, but we continue to do exactly what we've been doing. So because of that, because of white America being a domestic violence perpetrator, um, there's two ways to get the attention of a DV perpetrator and that is shame and money. So what I always ask is if I am being abused, then usually you ask for that abuser to leave the home. And if white America is the abuser, how are they able to come into the home and how are you supposed to help me heal whenever you're the domestic violence perpetrator? A part of your treatment plan is for me to heal, but I have to do that independently. So when you have white people that are in this field and even people of color, because we all subscribe to white supremacy because that's our culture. We all subscribe to anti-blackness because that's our culture out of survival. But when you have these people that are entering these homes that have no understanding of what this is and the damage is, irreversible. Once you enter the child welfare system, the children are affected, the families are affected, the aunts, the uncles, the entire community is, is affected. Um, and now there's more conversations about the transracial adoptions. Now there's more conversations about when someone is, is in a home that is not of their culture, of their ethnicity, how are you implementing and how are you continuing the narrative of white saviorism? God forbids a family of color raise their children to be black and brown children. I remember I said to a city attorney um, during, during a case, I said, I am a black woman and I can't raise a black boy to be a black man as a black woman. How do you expect a white man and a white woman to raise a black boy to be a black man when I can't myself? Um, these are conversations that are greatly uncomfortable to have, but it's more uncomfortable for, for people of color because they don't have the power in these conversations rather than white people understanding the trauma and the damage that they do just by being involved, just by being involved in the system. 
Um, so I know we've been discussing a lot about racial disparities, and I think um, one thing that's becoming clear to me is intersectionality is all over all of this. Um, but another topic that has come up quite a bit is mental health um, challenges parents and children face um, in substance use. Um, so can you talk about how what disparities you see um, with parents dealing with mental health or substance use uh, disorders um, compared to parents who are not dealing with those? In 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 my cases, you know, it's it's rare to have a case that doesn't doesn't have one, if not both, of those components in it. Um, you know, occasionally you have cases where it's it's just physical abuse or something, and there might be another, uh, there might be a component, sort of uh, a criminal case also um, that is that is stemming from that. Um, but by and large, uh, there is either uh, a substance use component. Uh, or a mental health issue going on. The cases that come to mind where those aren't an issue uh, are my clients that are uh, domestic violence victims where they have been um, abused by their spouse uh, or significant other. Uh, and that was either in front of the child or uh, in some way uh, uh, certainly affected the child and, and, and dealing with that. Uh, so the clients that don't have a substance use issue uh, or mental health issue uh, tend to be able to work their treatment plan and and be more successful a lot a lot quicker. They're they're by and large uh, more successful um, with their outcomes, which you know that really shines a light on just how. Um, pervasive and, and difficult it is to to address the substance use component and the mental health components and being able to give the parents enough time to actually meaningfully address those issues uh, and taking advantage of those situations. One of the one of the sad things that we often encounter is when somebody has a dual diagnosis where they have substance use and mental health, those are often the biggest, uh, the clients with 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 the biggest hurdles to getting um, to gaining sobriety and getting getting control of their mental health issues. Uh, often they're in denial about the mental health issues, and then the other issue is sort of a chicken and egg: which came first, the mental health issue or the uh, substance use issue, and and trying to deal with all of that. When you have a client with that, that is is good, the recommendation for them is going to be. You know they're going to have a lot of therapy and treatment to do, which also becomes overwhelming to them. Uh, you know, pile on the the issues with poverty um, that they have, and it, it it becomes very very difficult for them to uh, get to their appointments on time. Um, you know, even keep track of what appointment they have, what time on what day. They they're not getting a ton of support from the Department of Human Services. Uh, ORPC, the Office of Respondent Parent Council, recently developed uh, two programs. Uh, one is uh, has social workers that uh, we can utilize that will help assist our clients uh, that essentially do, do a large part of what you would expect the uh, caseworkers from the Department of Human Services to do. They, they find uh, places for clients that could, to do their treatment, uh, you know, closer to their homes, um, 
they provide rides to clients in order to get them to where they need to be. Um, and then the, the second, and MJ can absolutely speak to this more than I can, uh, they developed the uh, parent advocate portion of ORPC, which uh, has a parent that has been through uh, a, a dependency and neglect case. And that parent is available to uh, meet with the client who is currently going through that, talk about the issues that they're facing. And they've been through all of it before um, and more often than not been successful in their cases uh, and can really give those clients some perspective and certainly have somebody that, that knows what the, what the struggle is that they're going through from a unique perspective that they're not going to find anywhere else. Um, and speaking of that, we know that the that there is very rare, and Mike, you can attest to this as well, because I'm sure you've worked with many families of color, um, that there's a, people think that all psychology is the same. Um, there's been many times where, and I say white psychology because I'm involved in getting my PhD in international psychology, which is more of that cultural aspect, but how white psychology is used as a weapon against families of color. Um, psychology such as attachment, um, a lot of Gardner items, um, a lot of ignorant Gardner items, and 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 ignorant, and they're able to be ignorant in this field. Um, culturally disrespectful professionals are able to say something like, "This child has been in this foster home for this amount of time. They are attached. There's no way they can go back to their biological family." We know that that stems from racism. We know that that stems from what they believe is what's best. It is really hard to try to find a competent therapist that's able to relate to, to the clientele. Because what I tell them is that white America has to pick a side. You pick a side of either ignorance or you pick a side of being racist. But you don't get to say, ah, you have to pick a side. And what that looks like is that if you, if you didn't know about systemic racism, then okay, fine, step aside, move aside. But then you can't start making decisions for families knowing that systemic racism plays a part and essentially you still want to do your job, but knowing your job is damaging. That's what I mean by pick a side. You can't have it both ways. It needs to make sense. So going back to, to the mental health and the professionals, we know that these mental health professionals cannot serve our clients because if you don't understand that racism plays a part in this, um, if you don't understand that that how you represent this family and how you work with this family will play a part into them getting their children back, um, then you are in the way of progress. Um, kind of going back to what I said about domestic violence perpetrator and shaming white America, usually what has to happen is that there has to be someone that is the face. What a lot of white people like to do is say, systemic racism is like this invisible entity whenever it is individuals that uphold it, including myself. If you are working within this field and you know the field is unfair, we uphold systemic racism just by doing our job. Um, I, I use the example of if you're working you know, in a prison and someone is on death row and they give you, you know, this is the meal that this is the last meal that I want and you prepare the most beautiful meal. But you still know that this person shouldn't even be on death row in the first place. So how can you pat yourself on the back for giving this person the best steak, you know, dinner ever whenever they shouldn't even be here in the first place. So we have to address them on a systemic level. 
Um, and that's what we have to do. And that's what white professionals have to do in this field because white women has the most power that I've ever seen in this field. But then they stand behind the system. White women in this field are the neck and the white man is the head, but the woman tells the man what to do. No offense, Mike. Um, <laughs> um, as far as like the man just being the head, um, you're not just the head. But in this aspect, in this aspect of you can't play victim, but then know everything at the same time. And that's what people do in, in the child protection. I didn't know any of this was going on. This is so messed up. And yet you play a hand at it and you're not making it any better. So I do ask, and I will always come back to asking white professionals in the child welfare field to be an ally or to step out of the way. Because being an ally is an action. Being an ally is the action of anti-racist. And, and if you're anti, that is that action piece. What are you doing to dismantle the system? Because right now you're just getting a check. You're just getting a check. And my community is falling apart over your paycheck. So what I do is I call attention to white professionals in this field that actively uphold, aggressively uphold systemic racism by having high terminations, high TPRs. Um, there's someone that has worked that is still currently, I don't, I don't understand how she still has a contract. Um, that everyone knows that stakeholders have put on paper that she is racist, but she's a garnet litem. She's a garnet litem. She's able to easily keep her contract because she is a white woman. And that's what it boils down to. I need white America to take responsibility. You don't have to take responsibility for all the slavery, but you have to take responsibility for what you are doing in this place at this time right now. And if someone points it out that you're doing it wrong, keep in mind, you're not qualified to say what is not racist because you don't experience racism. You don't have the qualifications to say what is not. You can identify what is, but you don't get to say, but I'm not because I have a good heart. It's not good enough. We on this podcast try and have a, a positive outlook at, at the end of at the end of the podcast. Um, we talk about some really difficult issues and um, important issues, um, but I'm just kind of curious if you guys see anything out there that um, organizations or groups trying to help um, or are there any projects that you guys are working on that are trying to cause some systematic change? So uh, definitely with the creation of ORPC, uh, Office of Respondent Parent Council, uh, that has done wonders to uh, move the effectiveness of representation for um, the parents that are, are in these situations um, dramatically. It has um, completely turned turned it on its head. Um, you know, whereas before the, the people that were sort of doing this work really were there not to challenge the department and challenge the judge and challenge the GAL, they really would would just say this is what they're looking for to their clients and if the client did it great if they didn't well that's too bad they are very conscientiously getting attorneys uh that want to go to trial that want to hold the department's feet to the fire that want to um challenge sort of this way that it's always been done mentality in an effort to make sure that our clients are getting the representation they deserve and are availing themselves of all of the resources 
that they are entitled to under the law, which wasn't happening before. And where ORPC sees a hole that needs to be filled, they are creating the social worker division. They're creating the parent advocate uh, component to these things. Uh, And they are really moving forward in creating an appellate division. Um, They have created an appellate division where we are, as MJ alluded to, getting cases overturned from the Colorado court saying, this is the way you need to do it. Uh, in order to effectuate parents' rights in these in these situations, rather than just saying this is what we'd like to see from from the part from the point of view of everybody else that's involved, uh, that is just coming at it from the uh, child's best interest standpoint. Whereas you know we're fortunate enough to say yes, we're, we're that is a component, um, but we're we're concerned with what's in the parent's best interest here. What does the parent need uh, in order to um, be able to have their child back and be able to uh, raise that child in their family, in their community? Um, Because above all else, I think that is the most important um, thing that we are striving for, which is the reunification of these families. So uh, I would say ORPC is, is at the forefront of, of making the changes that need to be made um, at least on the uh, ground floor um, in the court uh, in the day-to-day advocacy for the uh, parents in these cases. I 100% agree. Um, so the buzzword a few a few years ago was multidisciplinary, right? So the, bu- the brilliant thing about ORPC is they have these attorneys and then we have social workers and then we also have the parent advocates. That's true multidisciplinary. Um, A lot of organizations will say they're multidisciplinary, but I always ask organizations, what is the the population that you serve? If it is 60% Latinx males and the decision makers in your office are white women, you are upholding systemic racism. You are subscribing to systemic racism because you're saying only us white people can help save these brown people, even though we took part in destroying the community. So with ORPC, it is a true multidisciplinary effect because it's not necessarily just social workers that went to the same school as the attorneys and we all look the same working on this case. And then you have the parents that they look just as white as the attorneys and as white as all the other professionals. That's true multidisciplinary is whenever you have multiple backgrounds of social economic class, um, ethnicity, in different privileges as well. What I'm doing as the MJ consultant firm, um, which we've been around since 2017, but I just developed a team, uh, an amazing team that aggressively works to combat systemic racism. After you identify that, oh crap, I'm the problem as well. We're, We're all the problem, honestly, because unless you are tearing it down, you are upholding it and you're just a spoke Um, in this wheel that just keeps turning and doing the damage on these communities. So what we're doing is actually, um, we are holding a nationwide um, protest against systemic racism in the child welfare system. We want this to be a annual thing. Um, And and our very first one will be, and I'm very proud to say here in Colorado at the Capitol, and that's on Saturday, June 5th. We wanted to kick off um, with the month of June because of Juneteenth. Um, and then, and also because it is LGBTQ, it's Pride Month as well. 
Um, and we know that that is a minority population that is involved in the child welfare system as well and not treated fairly within this system as well. Um, so what we do is I'm actually starting uh, this month, my YouTube channel with the MJ consultant firm to, to shine a light, kind of what Mike said, is to shine a light on those people and those voices that have not been heard and survivors of the child welfare system, including parents, children that are now aged out um, and professionals. Some have left the field, some are still in the field trying to continue this battle. Um, and in doing so, we also call out people, individuals, judges, attorneys, professionals, any guardian at items and so forth that uphold systemic racism. Um, and what that looks like is what is your TPR? What is this county doing? There are certain counties like Adams County has a higher termination rate, a higher TPR rate. Um, I've experienced a lot of personal racism, a lot of white terrorism um, that is designed to look like professionalism because mind you, white people created professionalism and the culture of professionalism. Um, so everything has that basis of white supremacy. And what people don't understand is that white supremacy is not this, I go in my house and there's a white hood in my closet hanging up. White supremacy means that whiteness is considered the best. And if it doesn't look like white, then it shouldn't be happening. That's what white supremacy is. That is all of our laws. Um, that Those are our policies, unless people of color overturn them. Um, my plea to white America is to start doing morally what's right, because usually white America don't make changes on their own. I've never woken up in white America was just like, you know what? Time to treat people with dignity and respect and fairness. Equality for all. I've never, I've never experienced that before. I would love for white America to actually um, take control of that and morally put into play what they want in other countries. Um, because we're all up in other people's business and people look for us, actually look at America for the child welfare system because to them it's working. Um, we need to reinvent. And in order to reinvent, you cannot have someone that does not understand the trauma and the pain of the communities to then heal them. Um, white America is not qualified to heal us until they understand what damage has been put on these communities and individually, what have, what have you done to inflict damage on these communities that are still not recovered from the child welfare system? So I have a question about that because, you know, one of the um, issues that we face, you know, on representing parents council, and I'm just kind of banging my head against the wall constantly is, you know, we have these caseworkers uh, that are probably, you know, 24, 25 year old, um, mostly white, uh, usually female, uh, that come into this work because they feel like they are doing the morally responsible thing. They do feel, uh, and most of them come from some privileged background, uh, and they get into this work because they want to help the children, right? Um, and everything that they're taught from when they're in the caseworker school um, and and everything else is you are helping the children. When you walk in there, you are wearing the white hat. Um, that is, you know, you're you are the shield that is protecting this kid from these awful parents over here. Um, you know, how do you address that mindset um, of these folks when you're kind of you know trying to to forward forward uh, what you're trying to do here? 
Sure. So uh, white America is a capitalistic society. The only thing that white America understands is money. Um, one thing that my organization is asking for, and shout out to DU because I teach at DU. I love DU. I teach social work. I teach at the Graduate School of Social Works. Um, a lot of adjunct faculty that I know that are also RPCs as well teach at DU. And we were having a conversation and, you know, you don't teach for the money. Just like Mike, you don't do this work for the money, right? Um, and the conversation that we were having is we teach at DU to infiltrate the structure because it's a lot of white instructors teaching a lot of white people to, to do white, wonderful things um, and to be, but what we're asking for is reparations from these colleges and from these universities that produce these students to not be prepared to work with the families that they're working with because that's the only thing that white America understands. So when we come out and we ask these institutions, and mind you, and the reason why I say these institutions is because um, there are certain scholarships, there's about four or five programs in the state of Colorado that I know of that um, students that are in, in graduate school of social work, they get a scholarship if they dedicate two years or more to being a child welfare worker. So it's a streamline of you're at the university, you are strictly gonna go into child welfare, and then you become a, a caseworker for the Department of Human Services. And then you get that uh, scholarship money and funding to do that. So when you start saying, you know what, University of Denver, you know what, CU, you know what, CSU, you're not producing good students. I'm going to need you to start paying. Then people will start listening and paying attention. I need you to pay. And what I'm asking for in those reparations is not to give money to the community. I'm actually asking them to give out scholarships for Latinx communities and black people to become therapists, psychologists and social workers because we know that white people are doing the damage. So how do you mitigate that? Then you give opportunities for other people so we can correct the mistakes that you're doing as these institutions. I know people want to do good work, but I need people to think about the community that they are affecting and to know that if you are not of that community, you're actually doing more damage because you don't really care what happens to the community as a whole. You go in there with, with that red cape, that saviorism, and you and you pluck that, that child out of that community that then continues to destroy the community. Um, so I'm asking for reparations in the sense of scholarships for people of color to actually start healing the community. I'm asking for um, anyone that, that is involved in the system to think and to step back. In my organization, instead of using competence, we use respect. And the reason why we use respect is because a brilliant colleague of mine was saying, you know how back in the day, so if Mike and I were friends in high school, which I'm sure we're the same age, if we grew up as friends in high school and I went over to Mike's house and Mike lives with his mom and dad, cousin, grandma, and I walk into Mike's home and I go, hi, mom. Hi, Dad, I'm talking to everyone. You address absolutely everyone. That acknowledgement is respect. White people go into these homes and they have they have these binders, these binders where they only see that child. They don't even acknowledge the community as a whole. That's the disrespect piece. So when I'm in Mike's home and I'm in Mike's community, I'm acknowledging that he is an extension of his grandma. He's an extension of his sister, of his auntie, of his uncle. And I also address them as auntie and uncle and so forth. Um, in the Native American community on the Navajo Nation um, reservation, this is why language is so important. 
they refer to their clients, not as clients, but as relatives. And just that change is huge. Because then if I say, Anthony, he's not my client. Anthony, my brother, Anthony, I'm going to treat him a lot more gentle. And I'm going to treat him the way that I would treat my family. But when you have the hierarchy of white supremacy that they call professionalism, which means I need distance between Anthony and myself. I need Anthony to know I'm above him. I know I need Anthony to know that I have all the answers. He has nothing. He actually needs me in order to be successful. That is white terrorism. That is white professionalism and white America. But when Anthony becomes my brother, my uncle, my cousin, then we're equal. That means that I'm helping him help me help his community. And it looks a lot different. We have to change the language. We have to change the dynamics. White people can't do that at all because they come from individualistic societies and mindsets. So you can, you don't think that way. You don't think that way. So that's why we need people of color to say, if this is the community that you are working within and working with, then I'm asking you out of respect, if I invited Mike to my house for Thanksgiving and Mike goes, what can I do? Usually a black woman, which we are the heels of every community will say, stand right there and then I'll let you know what I need. And then we'll say something like, will you pass me the salt? Will you pass me the pepper? Mike doesn't get to come in my home and say, I was just wanting to make the dressing the way I want. That's like the most disrespectful thing is that Mike trying to come up in my house during Thanksgiving and make goddamn dressing, right? But his job is to pass me what I'm asking him to pass me because he is in my home, right? Respect the communities that you work in. That is all we're asking for. Forget cultural humility. We don't have it. Forget cultural competency. You ain't got it. Let's just go back to respect. Just respect that I'm different from you. Well, thank you both for, for joining us today. Um, that was a great conversation. Um, I appreciate your time. So we would like to thank Jennifer Isle for joining us in our pro bono corner. We also like to do a special thanks to both Mike Boyce and MJ for our uh, interview segment. And also thank you listeners for listening to this episode of Stairway to AGJ. Be sure to check out other CBA podcasts, including the Modern Law Revolution, Our Voices, and Gin Legal With It. If you have an ATJ or access to justice subject you would like us to cover here on the show, please feel free to email us at atjpodcast at cobar.org. I'm Anthony Pereira. Be good to each other. And I'm Mia Kotnick. Keep climbing, stay curious, and come volunteer with us.